Good morning. How's everyone going? So uh, this morning we're going to look at Psalm chapter 1 and explore the, the two ways. So if you would turn with me to the passage, uh, we'll read through it. Psalm chapter 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the breath of life in us this morning, Lord. We just thank you for enabling us to be able to come and and worship you this morning, Lord God. And and learn from the, the wisdom of your scripture. Help us this morning to have open hearts, Lord, to, to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, speak to each and every one of us personally so that we may not only hear your word but also apply it so that our, our hearts may be nourished by it and your name be glorified in all that we do. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's an old saying, and um, possibly even a true one, that um, every man is seeking after happiness. And if that's true, then every man should read Psalm chapter 1, because it tells us where happiness can be found in its purest form. And what does it mean to be blessed, like truly blessed? What does the, the word blessed even mean? It's not a word we use very often, I guess, um, in everyday life, like you know, school or workplace or unless you're in some Christian or religious environment. Um, there are probably about a dozen or so prayers in the book of Psalms that begins, begins using the word blessed. And maybe blessed can be a bit of a religious word to some, and therefore it loses its meaning and its depth. But it's actually a very powerful concept that's in each and every one of our, our heads. We maybe just don't use the word blessed. The Hebrew word um, used here in the passage is asrei. Asrei ha'ish, blessed is the man, or happy is the man, or enriched is the man. I want you to think of your most, the most desirable life, your most desirable life. It shouldn't be too hard because social media and TV and magazines and billboards and all those things tend to uh, try to appeal to your ideal life at every turn. You've seen the ads that show, you know, the muscly guy with the six-pack abs driving a brand new Bentley, big house, like perfect dog. <laughs> or maybe you've seen like the beautiful lady with perfect skin and hair sitting on a beach somewhere sipping a cold drink with a little umbrella. You know, and the bottom of the ad says, this could be you, your perfect life. Bank with Bank West. <laughs> For me, the perfect setup would be uh, working three days a week, not a bill to worry about, spending lots of quality time with the family while still having free time to go surfing and rock climbing. You know, my ideal life. Uh, we're not talking about a specific blessing here in your life, like things. Uh, we're just talking about the most desirable life. To be able to look at the person and say, oh, the good fortune of the person who has this kind of setup. 
This is what the psalm is talking about um, as blessed, the most, uh, the state of well-being and fulfillment, most desirable life. But look at what the psalm says. It doesn't say the most desirable life and then lists a bunch of material things. Or it doesn't even list a, a, a bunch of things that we should do, but rather it starts by mentioning three things that the blessed person does not do. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Here we see the uh, psalmist use three sets of three to communicate the progression of a person's depravity. So three sets of three. First we see the downward progression of the one who first walks, then stands, then sits. Second, we see the second set of three in the council, in the way, and in the seat. And lastly, we see of the wicked, of sinners, and of scoffers. And this is a wonderful poetic device that uh, teaches us something. So how does these three sets of three relate to one another? And what is the psalmist teaching us about the progression of a person's depravity? Well, let's look at the first set of three. Here we have a picture of a person settling in and becoming comfortable in the way of the wicked. The person started off by walking in the way, only to pause and stand around, eventually sitting down and making themselves comfortable. Well, what exactly are they settling themselves into? Well, I think the second set of three sheds more light on the matter. First, we have the council, the Hebrews, which refers to the advice or, or the ideas of the wicked. And then we have the way, which is translated actually in the Bible many times as the road or the pathway or even the journey. And finally, we have the seat, um, the word mushab, which is the commonly translated as seat, but used most times in the Bible as the term for somebody's dwelling place or home. It's the seat at your home. You could say your favorite seat at the dinner table or your lazy boy. It's easy to see the progression here too. First, someone listens to bad advice, then they adopt that advice as a way of living, a a, a road or direction or journey that they'll be on. And eventually, they'll sit down at the table and make that wicked way a permanent dwelling place for their lives. Looking at the third set of three, we see another dissension into depravity. First, we have the wicked. Wicked being just the generic term for ungodly or evildoers. Then we have sinners, sinners referring to the ones who have missed the mark. This is more of a specific term, describing someone breaking a particular law of God. And lastly, we have scoffers, also sometimes translated as mockers. These are those who not only partake in the ways of the wicked, but scoff at uh, and mock at God's way of uh, righteousness. These are those who are furthest from repentance, as Proverbs 3.34 says, Uh, Speaking of the Lord, he says, he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. We see this kind of downward spiral in our community today. Sins like uh, abortion or homosexuality that were once concealed because of public shame have now become, over time, normal and commonplace. Today, people actually um, be hostile to to anyone who holds a biblical worldview. They'll scoff at God's design of, of marriage, and they'll disdain the value of God, that God places on human life. 
I think Romans 1, 28, 32 puts it well when describing this downward spiral of humans apart from God. Uh, verse 28 says, and, and just as they did not see it fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. But before we just go pointing the finger towards the world and at others, if we're not careful, we see this sort of downward spiral in our personal lives too. The book of Hebrews tells us of um, a hardening that can happen in our hearts towards God. It gives a warning in chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And it is deceitful, right? One moment you're walking and listening to the advice that seems right to a man from the world around you. Slowly but surely you become convinced of the way and you start participating in deeds that go against God's good design for human flourishing. And days turn to weeks, weeks turn to months, and before you know it, you are not only scoffing at God's design, but maybe you become the next source of bad advice that someone else listens to and stands next to and adopts as their dwelling place. So what is the passage in Psalm 1 saying? It's saying, oh, how happy is the man that doesn't get trapped in the beginning and gets sucked in deep and ends up going all the way into the death pit that is sin. How blessed, how enriched is the person who has a life like this? Is this a picture of blessing in your head? Is this a picture of an enriched life? He goes on to say, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. After listing three things that the blessed man doesn't do, the psalmist reveals the secret as to why the blessed man is so enriched. He delights in the law of Yahweh and meditates on it day and night. People must have some sort of delight, something they take pleasure in. Uh, as I said, you know, the human heart is never meant to be a vacuum. It's not filled, if it's not filled with the best of things, it will be filled with things that are short-lived and disappointing. So ask yourself this question. What makes you happy? What gets you excited? Um, this is a good way to see what's important to you. If a, a personal pleasure is the only thing that makes you happy, well, then you're, you're selfish and a self-centered person. If uh, being with your family or your friends delight you, then, well, this is better, but it still falls short. The righteous man finds his delight in the law of the Lord. The word law here is, uh, is a Hebrew word probably most of us know, Torah. Um, but we must be careful not to bring wrong connotations to this word when reading the passage. Maybe this word law can stir up negative emotions. Uh, perhaps you think of the laws related to you know, law and order. Thinking God's law is purely just an earthly criminal justice system, just catching criminals so you don't step out of line. Maybe um, because of a certain religious upbringing, when you hear law, you think of like a list of rules that you have to follow in order to keep God happy. 
um, just so he doesn't get mad at you and one day you can go to a place called heaven. But to the audience at the time, to the Israelites hearing this, to the psalmist writing this down, God's law is a precious, precious thing. God's Torah is his direction or his instruction to mankind. It can refer to a single commandment or it can refer to the entirety of Scripture as a whole. It's like receiving uh, a message or like a letter. I guess we don't really get letters sent too much these days. But um, from, say from a loved one when you're away or traveling far from home. It's a happy thing. God's word to us is like a, a letter from a heavenly father inviting us to discover the heart of the one who wrote this word and participate in his story of the universe and creation. If a person delights in something, you don't have to beg him to spend time on it. He'll do it all by himself. You can measure your delight for the word of God by how much you hunger for it. You see, it's not just any law or instruction. It's the law of the Lord. You may have Lord written in your Bibles in, in verse 2 as capital L-O-R-D. And this is just the English translator's way of letting you know that this is the word here um, in the Hebrew Bible translated as Yahweh, the name of God revealed to Moses. And this Yahweh God has revealed his character to man- mankind at Mount Sinai when he says of himself, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loyal love and truth. This is his personal word to mankind, revealing his compassion, revealing his grace, revealing his patience with mankind, revealing his covenant love, and of course, revealing the truth. And this is the reason why we delight in the word of God, because it reveals him. It's him who we love. Also, this is the same God that designed and ordered the cosmos and everything in it. It's the same God that designed humans, you and me. So it makes sense that he expertly gave us instruction on how to live because our good God knows what humans need to flourish and give him glory. Listen to what um, David said about the law of God in Psalm 19, verses 7 to 10. He said, The law of Yahweh is perfect. Restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments, uh, commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Think about those words for a moment. Instead of David, who wrote that psalm, praying these words, can you pray those words and mean them? Is that, is that your view of the word of God? Think about all the things that you take joy in. Is God's word your, your joy? So how blessed How enriched, how happy is the man who would meditate on this instruction day and night? It's easy to see the author of Psalm 1 here in verse 2 reflecting on the words. One, two, 
There we go. It's easy to see the author of uh, Psalm 1 here in verse 2 reflecting on the words um, that the Lord spoke to Joshua when he took over from Moses. God said in Joshua 1, 7 and 8, Only be strong and very courageous. Um, Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Delight is a response of the heart um, to something that's beautiful to you and has value to you. In this case, um, this would be the Word of God. But meditation involves sustained thought. It takes work and involves the will. A few years ago, I was doing a word study on um, uh, the word hagar, which is the Hebrew word translated as meditate here. I guess first seeing the English word meditate made me think of Eastern meditation, uh, where the goal is just to empty your mind, you know. Um, <laughs> but the biblical meaning of meditation could not be more opposite. The word meditate, hagar, literally means to mutter or to speak quietly over and over again. The idea is that um, every day for the rest of your life, slowly muttering, thinking, quietly reading the Bible out loud to yourself, um, and then go talking with fellow believers, pondering the puzzles, making connections and discovering what it all means. The story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is so dense and multi-layered that it requires a lifetime of study and a lifetime of meditation. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, reading reaps the wheat. Meditation threshes it and grinds it and makes it into bread. He says, reading is like the ox feeding, and meditation is the ox digesting when chewing the cud. It's not only reading that does us good, but the soul inwardly feeding on it and digesting it. I love that. The goal of biblical meditation is to fill your mind with the Word of God and chew on it and get all the nutrients from it, carefully thinking about each word and phrase, honestly applying it to yourself and praying it back to the Lord. And how often should we be doing this? Once a year, once a month? Um, Well, God said to Joshua, and he says here in Psalm chapter 1, day and night. In other words, all the time. This should be a frequent and a, a regular practice in our lives. It's like what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 about praying without ceasing, right? He's not telling you to pray every living second of every day. You know, how would you eat? How would you sleep? Um, you know, my mom told me not to chew with my mouth full, so how can I be praying every second of the day? No, he's saying do not cease to make prayer a frequent and regular practice in your life. The blessed man makes meditation on God's word a priority, day and night. What does your priorities look like? If you're not sure what's on the top of your priority list, let me help you. When you have free time, what is the first thing you run to do? When you have spare cash, what's the first thing you spend it on? When you're on conversation, what is the main topic that you always seem to go back to talk about? When you are lying in bed, what are the things you frequently think about before calling it a night? 
Most likely these tend to be the things you delight in, the things high on your priority list. You know, I'm, I'm so guilty um, of constantly occupying my mind with um, mindless entertainment. When I have a moment of free time on my hands, um, I seem to reach for my phone and my thumb just does this. Uh, endless scrolling through funny dog videos. Or I'll be driving the, the car and it's always like I have to have music playing or like a podcast playing in the background because somehow being silent with my own thoughts is uncomfortable. It's, it's then for me that I know that things are out of balance. And then I have to pray, Lord, help me not to always be living to please myself with entertainment or whatever feels good at the time. Help me to delight in you and find true joy in you. Uh, make, may I make you a priority in my life? Because this is how we know God. And this is how we know what it means to be truly human as the Lord intended. Our lives are unbelievably distracted today. In today's age, it's harder than ever to, to meditate, don't you think? In, in, saying what's, in saying that, I guess it's important that we intentionally cultivate motivation on, on God's word. We have to practice it. It's not enough just to make a commitment in my mind that I'm going to do better. We have to practically do something about it. So how can we do this? Well, if possible, find a consistent time and place something that you can stick to. A big one for me, talk about a plan with a Christian friend and ask them to keep them accountable. We have grace groups. We have accountability in our grace groups and family to, to lean on. Um, then do it. Read slowly. Read carefully. Reread and reread and reread. The Bible is designed to be read multiple times over and over again, each time being able to scratch deeper read out loud, which is actually implied by the word hagar, the Hebrew word for meditation, to read out loud. Read prayerfully. Ask the Lord to make what is written on the pages true of you. You know, Lord, make me like the blessed man. Memorize the text that you read. The Bible is actually structured in a way so it can be memorized, believe it or not. Not everybody in Jesus' day actually owned a copy of the scripture. Um, they couldn't Google a Bible verse. So they took Scripture with them in their hearts, and this allowed them to meditate on the Scripture wherever they were and bring it up in a moment when they are tempted to choose between two ways. Uh, read with other people and talk about what you see. Um, this is communal literature. It's meant to be read as a group. Uh, study a book of the Bible with maybe a good commentary. As the saying goes, we are not hungry for the lack of knowledge, but for the lack of intimacy. We already have two ways described to us here. We have the way of the wicked and the downward spiral of sin. And we have the way of the righteous who is a blessed man meditating on the law of Yahweh day and night. Verse 3 begins to tell us the results of the righteous way. Speaking of the blessed man, it says, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. What a statement. We see a sort of um, parallel passage, actually, in Jeremiah 17. Um, I'll read it and pay close attention to the similarities, but then also the differences between Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17. So Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8. 
Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream, and he will not fear when heat comes, but its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Being like a tree, of course, is a metaphor, right? It's a picture. And what does this picture tell us? Trees are constantly being used um, as a picture for human life in the Bible, And the prosperity of this tree um, describes the prosperity of the human. It starts by saying the righteous man will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Now, it's interesting here that the word planted is the Hebrew word shatul, which does not refer to the natural process of just like a a seed being scattered in the wind and uh, sprouting wherever it lands, but rather refers to a tree that has been transplanted or replanted taking a plant, say, out of an environment and one environment placing to another that's more conducive to growth and production and, and stability. It's like taking wild trees growing in a barren desert-like condition and carefully transplanting them into rich, prepared soil right by the water's edge. Speaking of water, uh, a tree by a river has a continual source of water. It will never wither away because it's always getting what it needs. Like our passage in Jeremiah 17 says, he says, For he'll be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream. Then he goes on to say, It will not be anxious in the year of drought. Why? Well, because it has a constant supply of nourishment to, to the stream, no matter what the weather does. So is the righteous man. The blessed man who delights himself in the instruction of God will find a constant source of life, no matter what life throws at you. And we know this well, right? Before We heard it in the gospel presentation this morning. Before we were saved, we were in Adam, dead in sin. But God, in his grace, rich in his mercy, has transplanted us into Jesus Christ. He has taken us out of Satan's domain of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of of his dear son. And with this new position also comes new provisions to us as believers, right? New resources of life and nourishment by the Holy Spirit and by his word. Both in scripture are likened unto streams of living water. For example, Jesus in John 7 was quoting Isaiah 44. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke of the Spirit. So what are the results of somebody planted by this wonderful stream? Well, the psalmist lists three things. They yield fruit in season. The leaves do not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. Notice again the reoccurring biblical principle, you could say. First the root, then the fruit. First the word with obedience and application, and then there is fruit. Sure, there is a time and a season. There's a season where the tree is maybe being um, nurtured, pruned, or getting ready for growth. 
But ultimately, there are no barren trees in the orchard of God. Galatians 5.22 speaks of the fruit of the Spirit in a believer. He says, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do these fruits describe you? Because these are the fruits of someone who delights in the law of Yahweh and meditates on it day and night. Somebody planted by a constant stream of nourishment. Also, if the tree didn't have nourishment from a continual water supply, the leaves would wither, it would turn brown, you know, die and fall to the ground. Brown, dead, withered leaves are signs of death and dryness. The righteous man does not have these signs of death and dryness. Does your life show evidence of being alive like a fresh like fresh green leaves on a tree that has been nourished. Nourishment that comes when you delight in the law of Yahweh and meditate on it day and night. And lastly, in whatever he does, he prospers. Now, it isn't that the righteous man has some sort of magic touch where um, everything he does makes him just rich and comfortable. Um, But in life, Um, In the life of the righteous man, God brings forth something good and wonderful out of every situation. Even in tough circumstances, God brings forth something that will prosper, and real prosperity. And this real prosperity results from the work of God in the life of someone who meditates on his word day and night. Do you seek to uh, operate, I guess, in a framework of God's will according to God's values and his purposes? Like uh, Psalm 3, um, 5 to 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your hearts. Do not lead on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do you delight yourself and meditate in the word, consulting scripture as a guide for whatever you do, every decision in life? If so, well, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, and whatever you do, you'll prosper. Now, the psalmist switches gears here, and verse 3 describes the results of the way of the righteous, but the next two verses, verse 4 and 5, give us a contrast showing us the way of the wicked. It starts by saying the wicked are not so. Everything true about the righteous man the blessed man, about having continual life, about having nourishment, uh, being fruitful, alive, and prosperous, it is not so regarding the wicked, not so regarding the ungodly. It may often seem like the ungodly have these things. You know, we may be tempted to look around, and sometimes it seems like they have more than the righteous. Sometimes those living by the ways of this world seem to look like they have all the blessings of wealth, prosperity, health, Um, satisfying every desire they seemingly have with no lack. But it's not true. It's not true. All of these things are fleeting in the life of the ungodly. A beautiful psalm for this, um, one of my favorites, is uh, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. The writer describes the the mental journey that he went through and the, the lessons he learned along the way. Uh, as he pondered why the, the righteous seem to always have it tough while the wicked always seems to have enough. And Psalm 73 verse 1 says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death. 
Their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart runs riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Sounds like the wicked scoffers from Psalm 1, doesn't it? He sees the wicked seems to be doing so well, but speaking of his own situation in verse 13 and 14, he says, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocent, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. So he's going through some hardships while the uh, wicked seem to be living easy. But in verse 16, the Lord opened his eyes to see the truth. He says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came to the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places and you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. The prosperity of the wicked is not true prosperity. It's just a mirage, temporary, ready to vanish at any moment. This is why the the psalmist um, in chapter chapter, um, 1, verse 4, goes on to say they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. So, what is chaff, in case you don't know? Chaff is like a, the light shell around the kernel of a grain, which must be stripped away before the grain can be ground into flour and then made into bread or something of the like. And chaff was, is, is, is light, right? Light enough that it could be separated from the grain um, by throwing a scoopful uh, into the wind and all the grain kernels will fall to the ground and the chaff will be carried along by the wind and blown away. That's how unstable, how lacking in substance the ungodly are. There are huge differences between a flourishing fruit tree and chaff. Therefore, because of how unstable, how lacking in substance the ungodly are, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. The, the word stand here, yakumu, which means in this context, ability to withstand or to endure judgment. Uh, In this case, the judgment of God. Because they are like chaff and have no weight, they'll be found lacking on the day of judgment. As it is said of um, King um, uh, Belshazzar in the book of Daniel chapter 5, you have been weighed out in the balances and found wanting. Not only that, but they will also be found wanting before the congregation of the righteous. This is true because sinners will not share the same glorious future the righteous will if they remain sinners. Let's look at how the psalm ends. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Saying the Lord knows here in verse 6 um, means far more than the fact that the Lord just knows everything. right? But in the context of the passage, uh, it's talking about personal intimacy and his involvement that he has with the righteous way and the righteous ones on the righteous way. He knows the way of the righteous. Unlike the wicked, say in Matthew 7, when Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. All the plans that they have will end in disappointment and ruin. As it says, the way of the wicked will perish. 
Proverbs uh, 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, its way is death, leads to death. And again, before us, we have two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, the way of life and the way of death. I was going to actually title this sermon, Two Ways to Live, but really there's only one way to live because one way is a way of life and the other way is just death and destruction. There's no third option here. There's two ways, and it's always been that way. The Bible starts off, um, we heard in the gospel presentation this morning about telling the story of Adam and Eve. There was two ways set before them, the way of life and the way of death, and they had a choice to either delight in the instruction of God Um, You know, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in doing this, they would end up eating from the tree of life and flourish and be fruitful and multiply, just like the tree in Psalm chapter 1. But they chose to walk in the counsel of a snake. They stood in a path that caused them to sin and then sat right down in their sin, making excuses when they felt like, it was the snake, Uh, it was the woman that uh, you gave me. Unfortunately, the story doesn't stop there because they had two sons, Cain and Abel. And after Cain became jealous of his brother Abel and plotted to kill him, the Lord came to Cain in his grace before then. He said, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It's desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Right then and there, God gave him a choice to choose life and to do what is right, or let the sin's desire for you overtake you and go down the path of death. Cain chose the way of the wicked. Well, surely the story gets better from here, right? Surely the next generation of people will will choose the way of the righteous, right? Learn from the previous generation's mistakes? Not really. God said to Abraham that he would protect him. Abraham did not trust God. He decided to take matters into his own hands and lie about his wife being his sister, causing a whole list of problems. Jacob acted just like the snake in Genesis and deceived both his brother Esau and his father Isaac. Moses was denied entrance into the promised land because he did not obey the word of the Lord. The children of Israel constantly chose the way of the wicked, even though God warned them, just like he did Cain, saying, See, I set before you today... Life and prosperity, death and destruction. Then he urged them to choose life, and they didn't. King David had a choice on that balcony after seeing Bathsheba on the rooftop. Option one, walk away, choose life. Option two, well, you could listen to the the counsel of this world. You could uh, follow the path of sin and commit adultery. And then, guess what? He sat right down in the seat of his sin and covered up his mess by lying and murdering some more. David chose option two. We come to realize the, the heavy, heavy truth of what Psalm 14 says. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. A quick survey of the scripture kind of leaves you Asking the question, is there anyone even able to walk in the way of righteous? Is there anyone to walk the righteous way? Are we all on the wicked way? Well, thankfully, God in his grace sent his son Jesus to walk on this earth 2,000 years ago. And just like Adam and all after him, 
Jesus was also faced with two choices. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, but he ruled over these temptations and he chose the way of righteousness. Jesus is actually the true blessed man of Psalm chapter 1. He is the enriched life that is to be desired. Jesus is the blessed man who did not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He did not stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight was in the law of his father. And on his law he meditated day and night, often taking time to have fellowship and intimacy with his father on the mountain, taking time to um, spend time alone. He is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Jesus bore much fruit, and his leaves did not wither, and everything he did, he prospered. What did he do? Well, 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is in Jesus that we are made alive to walk in the way of righteousness. Now, in him, and thanks to him, we can be the blessed man too. Amen? However, every day we still have to choose between two ways. We're still faced with these choices. The choice is always put before us to listen to the ungodly counsel or to meditate on God's word and listen to the wisdom of God. To follow the way of the wicked or to follow the way of the righteous. To choose death or to choose life. Jesus didn't leave us alone though. He has given us the helper, the Spirit of God that will convict us when we've gone astray. How encouraging that he will lead us and guide us in truth and he will strengthen and empower us to walk in the way of righteousness. Jesus has also given us his word, uh, a message that teaches, rebukes, corrects, uh, corrects and trains in righteousness, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says. And finally, we can have confidence in the Lord's commitment to us as he intercedes to the Father for us day by day. As Romans 8, 33 and 34 says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is, who is the one who condemns? Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So with this new life given to us by the Lord, let us walk in a manner worthy of the calling and walk in the way of righteousness. Let's ask the Lord to help us this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for who you are, that you are a God who is compassionate and, and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and truth. Lord, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to live the, the way of righteousness and pay the price so that we too can walk in the life that you have for us. Help us to walk in a, in a manner that's, um, that's, that's worthy of the calling. Help us to trust you, have faith. May we truly see that your ways are full of happiness and joy and life to the full, everlasting. May we not be tempted by the lies of temporary prosperity. Help us not to make the same mistake in the garden where we fall in the trap of listening to the counsel of the wicked. Make it, make it clear to us when, we, um, when the wisdom of this world tries to get us to walk by, stand around, and eventually sit in its destruction. 
And Father, make us a, a contemplative people here at GBF, Lord. May you sit in the throne room of our minds, Lord, and guard us from the things that might compete with our meditation of your word so that we may be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season, where the leaves do not wither, and whatever we do, we prosper to the glory of your name. Amen.